This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. After a surge of headlines surrounding sexual violence across the globe, now more than ever, women are binding together to show the true power that lie within their voices. Today, we speak with one of the women who bravely took those steps first. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Gretchen Carlson, award-winning journalist and recognized advocate for women's rights. She paved the way for the Me Too movement after she made headlines for filing a sexual harassment lawsuit against her boss, former chairman of Fox News, Roger Ailes. She has since co-founded the non-profit Lift Our Voices to end the silencing of harassment victims through forced arbitration and non-disclosure agreements and continues to be a champion for change. Gretchen, thank you very much for joining us on Women's Agenda. We're very excited to have you on. Um, You are, of course, really well known in terms of your stance for female empowerment. Um, And I know that the film Bombshell and also the TV show um, around your time working at Fox. But I want to introduce you to our listeners because actually you've had quite a varied career. You actually started off as a violinist. So I wanted to know, do you come from a musical family and do you still play? Well, it's so great to be with you. So um, I don't play anymore. So let's start with that headline. Um, I, I, my parents would probably love if I picked it back up because it was a huge part of my childhood. And I would say it was actually my career as a child. My goal in life back then was to be a famous concert artist and travel the world performing with symphonies. But um, it just didn't work out that way because I burned out when I was about 17 years old. And I just was interested in so many other things in life. And I realized to be one of the best in the world, I would have to give up everything else that I liked. And that was just too much tunnel vision for me. Uh, My parents were devastated, obviously, because I put so much time into crafting my talent. But, you know, I feel like I, the discipline that I learned from becoming, uh, you know, so good at a musical instrument at a young age is something I carry with me every single day of my life. And there were actually a lot of parallels between being a performer on stage and being a performer on television. And so that same skill set has been with me for forever. And I I think the most important thing is is that I don't get nervous because it's just sort of been who I am. I can imagine as a mother myself who tries to get my children to play, how disappointed your parents would have been though. (laughs) Um, You also then became Miss America in 1989. And I wanted just to talk a little bit about that and what your view is on beauty pageants and the beauty industry. Do you think they help or hinder how women are seen? Yeah, both. Listen, um, it's sort of a continuation of your question about my violin, because when I gave it up, my parents were devastated. My mom got a brochure in the mail about the Miss America competition. And she I was actually studying at Oxford University at the time in England. She called me and she said, I found something for you to do. And I said, what? And she said, the Miss America pageant. And I said, what? <laughs> um, mom, you know, I'm short. I'm five foot three. I play classical violin, even though 50% of your points were based on talent. Classical violin had never won. I'm from the state of Minnesota, which is not known as a pageant state. I was a tomboy growing up. I mean, all, everything was working against me. But my mom is sort of the driving force in my life and very convincing. And they wanted me to play the violin again. And they felt that if I prepared for this competition, um, I'd have to pick up the violin again, which I did. Um, and it just... You know, listen, it was it was something I never thought that I would do in my life, but it was the hardest job I'll ever have. And to, to back to your original part of the question, it was almost as if my entire resume fell off the face of the earth the minute that I became Miss America. I mean, suddenly I 
I was no longer a Stanford University student. Um, I was no longer valedictorian of my high school class. I was no longer a classical violinist. I was just a bimbo. And that, you know, is something that I tried to dispel throughout my entire year of, of service and continue to do so. Um, I, you know, I recently volunteered as the chair of the Miss America organization after they went through a controversial time and, you know, realized that in order to try and make it survive to its 100 year, that we had to make changes. And that for our board included getting rid of the swimsuit competition because it's a scholarship program and we just didn't believe that women should have to walk around in four inch heels in a swimsuit in order to be able to earn money to go to college. So, um, you know, listen, the, the, the organization has changed with culture as women have changed. And I think it's mirrored that. And, um, you know, I think I, I had massive benefits from being a part of the program and especially speaking in front of audiences every single day and having to be prepared and, um, so, you know, major benefits, but seriously, I've, I've, I've also had to try to live past that being on my resume. So, so one other thing I read about you, um, obviously the, the beauty pageant, but you also have been involved in a different kind of beauty pageant, Miss You Can Do It. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I helped to fund this organization. Uh, and what it is, is it's a competition for, um, from, for young girls who have special needs. And so um, they give they give out awards to young girls aged you know three all the way up to eighteen. And a couple of years ago, I went and actually hosted the pageant, and I brought my young daughter with me at the time, teenage daughter. And I think it was really a life changing experience for her and for me to see the impact that um, the impact you can have when you give recognition to to disabled people who aren't always. Um, you know, put in that kind of a position and, and the, the, the happiness on their faces to know that they had accomplished something. And, you know, listen, I learned from an early age that it was really important to give back and philanthropy has been a huge part of my life. And especially now over the last four years, I set up the Gretchen Carlson gift of courage, which, um, I finance a tremendous amount of women's organizations. Um, and then I started my own nonprofit lift our voices for all of my advocacy work to make workplaces safer, um, and I've been funding that thus far. So it's a, I believe you become whole as a person when you give back. Mm. You mentioned there lift our voices and around making workplaces safer. So I want to come and talk a, talk a little bit about that. Just before I do, you mentioned there that you studied at Oxford and you studied at Stanford. And I noted that the thing that you focused on was organizational culture. I wonder how that that period of studying organizational culture has uh, helped you as you look at how to change workplace cultures? Any observations there? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. So if I had used my degree from Stanford, I would have been a corporate consultant, basically a problem solver, right? And I was also headed to law school, which I took my LSATs, but then that never happened because I got into TV. But uh, yes, I, I believe that it's given me great perspective as to the changes that I'm encouraging companies to make to, in order to make the, the workplace safer for all. And that really starts with these silencing mechanisms that here in the United States, companies are very good at incorporating into employees' contracts. And, and what it basically does is that on your first day of your job, you sign on the dotted line that you will never have a voice, that you will never be able to speak up if something bad happens to you in the workplace. And and how on earth would you possibly know what was going to happen to you? You know, when I went to Fox News, I never dreamed that 
what ha- eventually happened to me was going to happen on the first day when I signed on the dotted line. But when I realized what that meant, it meant that I had technically no voice, no recourse. Um, and, and if my lawyers hadn't figured out a way to strategically file my suit against Roger Ailes, the CEO and chairman of Fox News personally, instead of the company, we wouldn't be even having this conversation right now because there arguably would never have been a Me Too movement. So the idea that we silence people has the magnitude of what happens when we silence people is is huge. And that's why this has become my life's work now to to try and change this, um, because I've just talked to thousands of people who have lost their careers as a result of it. And I think that's wrong. And so I actually have legislation on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. to to try and change that. And and I I'm very optimistic now with the new administration here in the United States that I'm actually going to accomplish this and it will be a game changer in the workplace. Um, In fact, I I will see it as my greatest achievement in my life, uh, other than my two children, if I can make this happen, because it will be like changing the landscape of the American workplace overnight. Um, So that's very common in the U.S. I will tell you that by 2024, 84% of big companies in the United States will have arbitration clauses. 84%. I mean, it's it's the way they've done business now to basically try to cover up their dirty laundry. Mm. You started working in TV in 1990 and then you joined Fox in um, uh, 2006. And 10 years later, you filed a harassment suit against Roger Ailes. In the time that you worked in TV, particularly when you started, what was the attitude towards women and how did you respond? Yeah, uh, another great question. So you're not going to believe this, but the very first story that I covered as a cub reporter in Richmond, Virginia, was the Anita Hill hearings here in the United States, which was when she had accused uh, Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. And I remember watching this, and it was really the first time that there was such a highly publicized case about harassment. And of course, all the white men who were members of Congress and asking her questions were just horrible to her. And, um, and I remember thinking to myself, why don't they believe her? And the very interesting thing that happened to me right after that was that I was promptly sexually harassed on the job. And so it really put into perspective for me in a horrible way that I had just watched these hearings and was learning about what sexual harassment was. And then it happened to me at work. And it was the most terrifying, you know, one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. Um, it wouldn't be the last time, but um, I came to realize that that women you know, the way that we've, that we've taught women to deal with this up until now was to just hide it, you know, to not ever say anything um, because we know that we'll be blamed if we do and we'll be the troublemaker and we'll get fired. And so women just sort of were, were, were socialized to just stuff things down inside of ourselves and try not to think about it. And I was also sexually assaulted twice um, during my year, actually, as Miss America. And uh, I was trying to do the right thing and be progressive and meet with television executives because I realized that's what I wanted to do for my career. And in two separate incidences, just three weeks apart, um, in cars, these two men basically, you know, threw themselves on top of me and tried to force me to do sexual things with them. And I didn't tell anyone about it for 25 years because that's how we're socialized. Um, and, And now I've, you know, when I speak to young people, I try to encourage them to have their voice a lot earlier on than 25 years. You know, it's so important to, to speak up now. And we're in this movement where it's okay to speak up. And 
Um, so, you know, I experienced this very early on. Mm. Um, in, so in 2016, you do effectively kick off the Me Too movement after you launched the suit against Ailes um, after being fired by Fox. By this point, you have worked there for 10 years. What had driven you to that point, if you know what I mean? Like, why then? Yeah, um, because when I realized that the career that I had killed myself for was being taken away from me and it was not my choice, I thought to myself, if I don't do this, who will? And nobody else had jumped off the cliff yet there, um, at least not publicly. And so I jumped um, with no safety net and no idea what the hell was going to happen to me the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next week. Um, and it's I, I will just add also that it's not like I just decided the night before that I was going to do this, you know, um, I had been thinking about this for quite some time, and my biggest piece of advice to women is to make sure that you gather evidence and that you bring it home with you so it's not in your office, and, you know, and that you tell other people about it so that you have witnesses and that you document everything. Um, it's just, it's why I wrote my book, Be Fierce. It was basically a playbook for women to know what to do if they were facing this in the workplace. But I always say that Courage is not like coming into a room and turning on a light switch. Courage is something that takes a tremendous amount of time to build up in order to finally take that leap. But it was my belief that when they fired me, that if I didn't finally stand up and say, here I am, um, that nobody else might do that. And, you know, it turned out almost the best way that I could have ever imagined. Because how did I know at the time that my efforts would help to instigate a worldwide movement? How did I know that? I, I couldn't have known that. I thought I was just going to be sitting in my home office every day crying my eyes out because I didn't have my career anymore. And, you know, in the end, it, it put me in a position, somebody said to me early on, you know, something good is going to come of this. And I couldn't see it then at all, but it's so true now because other people that know me really well say, Gretchen, this is what you were intended to do your whole life. You know, this is what you're supposed to, this is what you were supposed to have been doing. And so I actually really believe that I've always been such a ardent supporter of, of women's rights. And, um, I feel so proud that I'm taking charge and, trying to make a difference. And it's hard work. Let me tell you, fixing this issue is a tangled web. But um, I, I look into the eyes of my children and I realize that my work is going to change it for them. And that is what you know keeps me going is that um, I don't want this to happen to my daughter or to my son. And, and that's what fuels my fire. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds to me listening to you, I mean, you've had an incredible career, but it sounds to me as though you're, you're in a period of your career slash life where you've, you feel like you found your purpose. Yes, for sure. With all my advocacy work, but you know, my passion still is journalism. And so, um, I do a daily podcast that is just straight news down the middle, which America needs desperately right now <laughs> because we're in such a hyper-partisan time here in case you hadn't noticed. Um, and so people, you know, really just want to hear the, the headlines they can trust. So I started that this past fall and it's called get the news with Gretchen on Quake Media. And then I also joined the People Magazine new television show called People TV. And I do inspiring long form interview stories for them. So it's been great to go back to what I love 
as well. And, you know, it, my husband always says to me, how can you be more busy now than when you were doing a, a daily national television show live? And I say, because I'm trying to change the world, you know, and at the same time, at the same time, trying to do what I love. And of course, being a mom to two teenage children as well. Mm. Sure, I hear you. Keeps you busy. Um, you uh, obviously you became very very well known after um, after you left Fox. Uh, there've been two significant uh, pieces about you: Bombshell, the film, and also the TV show, The Loudest Voice. Have you watched them? Do you, do you feel like they're accurate? <laughs> um, yes, I have watched them, and because of the incredibly stringent non disclosure agreement that I had to sign with Fox News, I cannot even tell you if they're accurate or not, and that. I mean, that is what's so crazy about this. It's actually the genesis of my organization, Lift Our Voices, because I'd love to be able to tell my story, the, the, the whole truth someday. I was at Fox almost 11 years. There's a lot to tell. But why I'm doing this fight is not necessarily so Gretchen Carlson can tell all of her truths, but so that the millions of other women and men in this world who've been silenced can one day tell their truths. You know, the, the people who don't maybe have the national platform and the resources that I have, that's why I'm doing all of this work, because it's a pervasive epidemic of silencing people. And so, uh, you know, cute story. I, I, I did go to the movie theater incognito um, with my children and my husband to watch Bombshell. And uh, so I put on a baseball cap and it said, women rule. And my kids looked at me and they said, mom you can't wear that into the theater. Everyone will know it's you. <laughs> and I said, all right. So then I, so then I had a raincoat on and I put the hood over my face. And so I said to, the, to my kids, now, when we get into the theater, we have to be quiet through the whole movie. We can't call any attention to ourselves. Even if you see your characters being played out or whatever, you know, you can't say anything. And of course, the minute that the characters of my children got up on the screen, they were like, that doesn't look at all like me. That does, and I'm like, I'm like, guys, we had a promise here. We weren't going to call any attention to ourselves. So after it was done, um, we all went out sort of the back. You know, nobody goes out the back entrance of the movie theater. And, um, you know, I, here's what I can say about the projects. Even though I can't comment on these or tell you if they're accurate or not, if even just one person felt inspired to stand up and speak up after seeing these projects, then it's worth it. You know, it. I take the high road on this because I can't talk about it. And unless some miracle happens and Fox decides to let me out of my NDA, um, I'll never be able to talk about it. Um, the, the one great thing, though, I would say to you is that my lawyers and I were smart enough in my settlement agreement to, number one, get a public apology, which never happens. And number two, to, um, to give me the opportunity to be able to talk about this issue. And I have taken full advantage of that to try to make workplaces safer. And so had I known at the time that I signed my settlement agreement that we would eventually four years down the road be talking about getting rid of NDAs and getting rid of these other kinds of silencing mechanisms, then I would have fought really hard to not sign it. But how did I know that my story was going to kick off this revolution? Again, you know, going back in time, there's no way to have understood that. And so at the time I, I signed it because I just thought it was part of the process. And had I known what it really was and where we would be today, you know, I would have I would have taken a very hard look at at not agreeing to that. But now when I counsel women, I say, look, we're in a different time now. You don't have to sign that. There are millions of people out there who will support you if you don't sign that. And um, and so we're starting to see that. And and 
that is so heartening to me to, to, to see that we are making change in a very you know, swift fashion. Just asking about that point, you know, the sort of non-disclosure agreements that, as you said, are widely in place in America. Are you've got this legislation up on Capitol Hill, which you're hoping will change that, and you said you feel confident, which is great. Are are women on the ground more aware that they don't need to sign these agreements? I mean, you know, is there is there any power shift when you're actually going into an organisation now to say I'm not I'm not comfortable with that arbitration clause? Yeah, you know, it's. I, I try to say to, to people all the time, if you band together, um, the power of the, the power of even one voice, but certainly in a group is just can be overwhelming. Um, we had we had in the United States, and I think it was actually worldwide, the Google walkout a couple of years ago. And and that was actually emblematic of what I'm talking about, because it was one woman's idea to walk out that day because of these arbitration clauses that I'm fighting to change and because companies were giving massive payouts to predators. And that one woman's idea turned into an international day of people walking out, men and women, and supporting her on this. And it showed the power of one voice, but it certainly showed the collective power of a mass amount of people. And so I use that as a great example of of how we can be empowered ourselves when we think that our voice doesn't matter, that it does. And if we can even bind together with three, four, five, ten other people and go to human resources and say, we don't want these silencing clauses anymore. You know, you could make change. And and so I think it's um, this whole era has really shown that uh, what my favorite quote, which is one woman can make a difference, but together we rock the world. And that's what we're seeing happening every single day. And when I counsel all of these women, they reach out to me and they say to me, I'm not going to sign the NDA. And I say, good for you. Good for you. Because that's how you're going to make change. If you fall back into the old system, then we're, we're not going to continue to make change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really these women are inspirational to me <laughs> that, that they're taking other risks now um, to, to try to continue this pattern of change. Mm, it's interesting hearing you say that quote, you know, one woman can make a difference. Uh, one of my very favorite quotes is a quote by Margaret Mead. Um, and it's never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Mm. Um, yeah. And the so work you do really fits into that. Um, Gretchen, just, I don't know how much you've been following what's been happening here in Australia recently. Um, we've had a lot of women's marches last week. Uh, there's been a couple mm-hmm. of incidences in our parliament. There's been an accusation of sexual um, assault in parliament um, and also some accusations against a very senior politician in Australia with regards to um, a sexual assault. Have, have you followed any of those stories? Have you, have you, yes. have you seen what's happening? No, I, I have. Um, and, and, you know, look, it's it is not just an epidemic in the United States. It's it's everywhere. And I hear from people all around the world. Um, and you may not have the same sort of silencing mechanisms, which is a good thing. I hope your companies don't suddenly decide to put them in um, with these kind of movements happening. Right. Because they may be like, oh, let's try to figure out how to cover all this up. Um, I don't think that will happen because the, the movements will be more powerful. But you're already a leg up uh, on us because you don't have these silencing mechanisms. So I think voices can be heard louder in Australia right now. Um, you know, but but hats off to the women and men who have f- felt empowered to come forward because I know it's not easy and it's such a personal choice and it can be career ending and it can be just a devastating decision. 
But uh, I think you see with the marches that when people come together, as we were just discussing, that's when you make change. Yeah, and, and absolutely, and it's been really, uh, it's been really topical. It's something everyone is talking about here in Australia. Um, one final question, Gretchen, and you know, thank you very much again for coming uh, on coming to our podcast. It's been fantastic to talk to you. And um, like I said, you did start off a revolution that was the beginning of Me Too. So looking back, here we are in 2021, uh, back to 2016, five years. Do you think that Me Too has achieved what it set out to achieve? And what do you think the next phase is or should be? Yeah, I don't even know if when we started this revolution or Me Too, if anyone knew what the outcome would be, but it was just like the floodgates opened and people suddenly felt comfortable to say, yeah, Me Too, right? And they could do it anonymously on social media or they could put their name and face on it. And it just suddenly made the world realize that this was everywhere. And and I think um, I think we've made massive strides. Um, I really don't think you put the genie back in the bottle on this anymore. And I would just draw a comparison to Black Lives Matter that with the BLM movement as well, even though it's totally different from Me Too, there are a lot of parallels. And I actually don't believe that BLM would have happened with the strength that it has if Me Too hadn't been there before. Because it was sort of inspirational to know that voices did matter. And if you stood up and spoke the truth, um, that, that you could actually enact change and people would just not forget about you the next week. And I would also just say that the other incredibly strong parallel between these movements is evidence on video. You know, we saw Black people being killed by police officers on video. And that made it so unbelievably true that you couldn't ignore it, finally. And the same thing in the Me Too movement, you know, women had evidence (laughs) and they had recordings and they had video. And um, so I think there's these massive parallels between these movements and and I really don't think either one is, is going away. And I would just say to that, it's about time. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was produced by Alison Ho. If you enjoyed what you heard, then make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast player and please leave us a rating. To hear more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au and I look forward to hosting you in the next episode. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.